0: you in part by the Blind Marketplace, which has been selling you overpriced merchandise, well, because they can, and by the Blind Model UN team. Join! So today we're going to be discussing how different judicial philosophies shape uh, judicial decision making and the way in which judges arrive at their own conclusions. And we're going to be doing this through uh, examining, instead of sort of dryly presenting what the different ideologies are and then sort of expounding upon them, what we're going to be doing is Talking about different cases that are really interesting, and uh, the different opinions reached on these cases, very very well exemplify uh, the the way that judi- uh, that justices reach their opinions based on uh, different judicial methodologies. So the first case that we're going to be discussing is called the District of Columbia versus Heller, D.C. versus Heller. This was decided in 2008 and uh, just let's give some quick facts about the case I think and, and I think the the coming to this with an open eye and with an open mind and um, it's very interesting to see the way that these two people have have decided um, or the different sides have, have come to their conclusion so with that um, in DC there was in, in, in the early you know in 2005 to 2008 around that time there was the highest urban crime rate of any other city in the United States and this warranted the the need, well, as the city saw, the the need to have gun control regulation. Now, there are a lot of statistics about the different types of, of homicide deaths and suicide deaths that, that were occurring in D.C., but that's sort of not the main thing that we should focus on right now. The, the thing that we should focus on is what this law actually did. Now, there are three uh, prongs to the law that D.C. passed. I've got it right here. So first, the district, um, the, the, the law concerns one class of weapons. It talks about handguns, and uh, that I think, and so there, it, it, it talked about um, the the area of the scope, which was totally urban, and the district law aimed at a compelling problem, which was that of uh, gun violence and gun deaths in the city. So, uh, and just bear with me for a second here as I pull up the, uh, the different Parts of the statute. So, uh, as I said, the first. So, and this is the way that it achieved that. Right, the first portion of the law required a license from the district's chief of police in order to carry a pistol, in other words, a handgun anywhere in DC. Now, this is, you know, these are relatively easy to, to acquire licensees, but still, that was the first portion of it. The second portion of the law said that the district restriction requires that the lawful owner of a firearm keep his weapon, quote, unloaded and disassembled or bound by a trigger lock or similar device, unquote, unless it is kept in a place of business or being used for lawful recreational purposes. So second point was that you needed a trigger lock or disassembled. Uh, And the third point of the law was that the district uh, restriction prohibits, in most cases, the registration of a handgun within the district. Now, because registration is a prerequisite, in many cases, to firearm possession, the effect of this provision is generally thought to prevent people in D.C. from possessing handguns. Uh, So, with that, Heller challenged this, Mr. uh, Dick Anthony Heller challenged this This. Law this DC statute and brought it all the way up to the Supreme Court and uh, ultimately this is a perfect case to to, to show the different ways that um, originalism and living constitutionalism play constitutionalism excuse me play uh, in ju- uh, judges uh, decisions so uh, Marco is that do, do, do you sort of I mean is that sort of a, a good uh, Understanding of the of the laws as far as I've laid it out. Do you think is there anything? Right, I, I,
1: I, I think the and and ultimately the question now is sort of for the court to decide is whether or not this you know owning a gun in the home or owning a gun for the purpose of self defense would that be understood in terms of the interpretation of the Second Amendment? And so uh, what we'll do is we'll provide several links in the show notes that will sort of lay out you can look at the prior history of it because uh, otherwise this podcast could go on for forever three hours yeah um, so the relevant case law will be uh, in Attached, the show notes right. will there will be a link for you uh, if you want to explore those cases I think what we want to do is sort of take the uh, take a moment just to make some things clear I think it's obvious when you think about DC versus Heller. If you look at what the court eventually argues, that this is a good representation of of what original, originalism looks like, what it feels like um, in terms of if originalism could have. Feelings. <laughs> um, so you know, when we think about this in this context, it's sort of this is a good way for someone who has no idea of how originalism works to understand it. Right to understand it. So I think it's important that we understand that. Originalism is different from textualism, or different from the other sort of philosophies, in terms of n- looking at how the the language appears in each of the individual amendments, and then how you apply or how you derive rights and liberties from To those. current issues. Right. So I think I think when you think about originalism, we're really looking for what's the meaning, what's the um, what are the meaning of the people who. First drafted this, and or the meaning it, right. uh, ratifying it, uh, or the original meaning behind the language itself. Back to the you know the times of tracing history. We want to look at the tradition in terms of what this looks like. Um, and so, so for this conversation, there's really two individuals that we sort of want to bring out because they've also staged this conversation themselves. Is sort of uh, Associate Justice Stephen Breyer. And Associate Justice Anton Scalia, who obviously we know, is no longer with us. So So sad, so sad. So sad. Sammy's crying right (laughs) now. But so what we want to do is sort of, if, if we read the language of the Second Amendment... Right? The language basically so, says...
0: I, I, so I've got the Second Amendment. Yeah, so the, the Second Amendment reads, uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's all it says.
1: So, so the question... So as, as you may or may not know, there is a process of granting rights. And so, you know, when we think about what the 14th Amendment means... Right? We have to answer this question. In this court, this case doesn't really answer that particular question, but we want to know: Are certain rights do they end up being fundamental? Are there something some of those rights where the government cannot uh, uh, cannot take away completely? We do have to acknowledge the fact that these rights are not absolute. So, if there is going to be this format of disqualifying this right, then we have to figure out what are the limits in which the disqualification. Happens, and and so so on, on. A more fundamental level, I mean, I, the the
0: main argument sort of revolves around that meaning, right? The, a well regulated, well regulated militia, excuse me, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not infringed. What does that mean? What did it mean at the time of the framers? And you know, is maybe is the majority court's decision a perversion of what it meant? We don't know. So that's sort of up to up to you to decide. So what what I want to first talk about uh, with you, Marco, is is what the court actually said. So the court decided this case. Uh, five four, and they said that the Second Amendment unequivocally encompasses a personal right to self-defense via handgun or or arm, and so let's just talk about this real quick and flesh this out. So. In the majority decision, they relied on four basic things. I mean, all judges rely on four things. Some rely on six, but all rely on basically the text, the history, the tradition, and the precedent that surround uh, any particular amendment or you know portion of the Constitution. So I'd like you, Marco, to, to, to show me where in the history or just in, in any interpretation of the Second Amendment ever there was
1: ever implied to be a right to personal defense. Can you, can you do that for me? I, I, I think I can. I think. I think <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's <laughs> see, that, it. Let's that, see that, it, I'd that, love that, to see that, it.
1: By the way, I'm being put on the spot for that. So I think, I think when, when you look at the history of the Second Amendment, you have to go back as the, as the, uh, as the reading does, uh, as, the, as the court does, you have to kind of go back to what is the Second Amendment mean to the people who drafted it and what was the purpose right. behind that drafting. So when you go back to look at the history, you see that there is this need to or fear of standing militaries and standing armies. Standing We've kind armies, of grown right. accustomed to that because we you times know we change, understand right, yeah. right times have changed but also Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution says Congress has the ability to raise armies and navies for obviously, the, in the framers were thinking this in the context of needing to preserve the union, defend the union, which is why the president's commander-in-chief and why Congress can ultimately raise those armies and navies. Uh, and by extension of that, obviously, can also raise an air force as being necessary right. and proper. So the question then is, why put, a, why put an amendment in place that says right. a well-regulated is, yes. militia, right? And to answer that question... Why would they do it? Why would they do that? Well, the framers themselves, especially anti-federalists, so, so I guess a good point here is to say the simple answer is that this is a compromise between the federalists and anti-federalists, whether you agree with that or not. He's and Sammy. He's right wrong. now you can't see this. <laughs> He's shaking his head, which is completely okay. But if you... So the compromise here is if we're going to get this, this document ratified, we need to make some concessions. And Madison felt we didn't need concessions because the Constitution was pretty clear in creating a federalist system. Now, what he came to understand, especially in that original first Congress, was that there, you know, there was this idea that maybe what we should do is go back and rewrite the document or change the document. And he was dead, you know, did not want it to go down that road. Some people even said, well, why don't we just put footnotes? <laughs> Into the, into, the, in, into the Constitution. And these footnotes would then be like, oh, look, First Amendment protection. Yeah, mini-amendments, right. So and obviously, through compromise and through conversation and debate in that first Congress, we get this Bill of Rights. And now the question is to go back, and I'm going to be a long-winded answer to this. But the question then is, OK, so why the Second Amendment? And the purpose behind the Second Amendment, if you want to believe my side of the story, is we the citizens need to have a way to protect themselves from the national government taking away their rights the only way to do that in a republic is to guarantee that citizens have the right to protect themselves so you would have to you would have to give them is- some sort of protection of their weapons, so that they could then go ahead and no, protect no, themselves. No, no. This is completely uh, sorry. Are you, are you? No, no, that's okay. okay that, you this could... is okay.
0: So th- that, that, by the way, is completely refuted by history and by what the people, of the, you know, the ratifiers and other states had said. If we look at the actual history, right, because that's what originalists did, and this is why sort of what Scalia did is 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 a is a um, yeah. sort of a a huge dig at the at any at any possible merits of originalism. What Scalia brought forth was none of that, and so let's let's look at the history, right, because that's what Scalia always starts with.
1: And by the way, this history is going to be based on the English Bill of Rights.
0: Actually, no, it's not. This history, if we want to look at the English Bill of Rights, we can. But the English Bill of Rights also was completely applied in different circumstances and with restrictions to people who own property and people who were in the majority, which is not what the amendments were willing to protect. Which is
1: why it's important, if you're looking at this, we've read the text. You have to be Protestant, for Christ's sake. So so we've read the text, and now we're moving on to the history here. But it's also, the the information I give you is the correct history. mm -hmm. What Sammy is arguing <laughs> is sort of how to take that history, which obviously no. presents, it's, 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 so this is, presents uh, itself when you're writing an opinion, to take that history and use it fine. To, to, to deliberate and give you some sense but of how that history I
0: don't think real. that delegitimizes or, or, or no, in no way. way, right. Comments right. on the history, right? right? Because no, when, when we look right. at, okay, so Madison was the one who came up with the Bill of Rights, right? That's, we know this. Madison wrote the Bill of Rights. That's uncontested history. Now, in order to write the Bill of Rights, what he did was he had all of the grievances that states had with the Constitution and, uh, you know, the, the the concessions that they needed to have uh, on, on the sort of condition that they would sign the Constitution were sent to the Constitutional Convention, uh, the place in which Madison wrote the Bill of Rights. Now, let's look at a few of the different ratifying convention proposals that were sent to him, uh, to Madison, that he had on the table when he came down and sat down to write this Second Amendment. From Virginia, right, the, the, the original Virginia ratifying convention read for, for one of their proposals, that the people have a right to, quote, this is a quote, excuse me, that the people have a right to keep and bear arms, that a well-regulated militia composed of the body and the people trained to arms is the proper, natural, and safe defense of a free state, that standing armies are dangerous to liberty and therefore ought to be avoided as far as the circumstances and protection of the community will admit, and that in all cases the military should be under a strict subordination to and be governed by the civil power. That is straight from the Virginia Ratifying Convention, in which there is no mention of personal right to defense. But let's keep looking. If you look at, and so New York proposed something that was pretty much the exact same thing, Uh, then um, what's interesting is to look at what Pennsylvania proposed. Uh, They said, quote, that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and their own state or the United States or for the purpose of killing game and no law shall be passed for disarming the people or any of them unless for crimes committed or real danger to public inquiry or excuse me, from public injury from individuals and a standing armies in the time of peace are dangerous to liberty. They ought not to be kept. uh, And it goes on. So when Madison sat down to write this bill or excuse me, to write this amendment. It is, it is very ironic for the majority court and for Marco to really purport that originalism encompasses a right to, that the original meaning of the Second Amendment was to encompass a right to keep and bear arms for self-defense when Jefferson sat down to write this amendment. And remember, there is no place in this amendment like the Pennsylvania uh, suggestion had that's, that, that paves the way for explicit self-defense. Now, you could say you might interpret it from it, but why would you do so if Madison's decision to model the Second Amendment on the distinctly military Virginia proposal... Is therefore, you know, it's revealing since it is clear that he had to have considered all of the different proposals and and rejected formulations that would have been unambiguously used to protect civilian use of defense with firearms. In other words, Madison sat down to write the Second Amendment. He had all of these other amendments uh, proposals from all the different states, and he said, "Okay, we're going to." And he made the explicit choice to reject. Any amendments language that had anything in there about the right to self-defense. So, how can somebody who's an originalist and who uses history to to you know to, to research decisions possibly conclude that if Madison had these options on the table and that there were debates in Congress about these options, that and that they were then you know that they were subsequently rejected, that then the, the original intent was was still to have self-defense. I mean,
1: nobody in their right mind would say that. Well, I guess I'm going to be the person with the right mind, oh, right? Oh. So I think I think, <laughs> that, I think um, that when we look at what Scalia ultimately writes in this opinion, he basically takes the Second Amendment language and he says, look, we have a couple of different clauses in this amendment, right? So he says the operative clause, which is the right of the people, right, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, from an originalist perspective... The idea is that we would go back to, and I I guess this is the only way to do this, is to go back to the dictionary in terms of 17th century and look at what it means to keep and to bear arms. And that it's also important to understand in terms of this history that, or the history of what gun gun ownership sort of looked like, um, uh, slaves would also not have had the right um, to possess you know, guns in terms of the individual states. But in terms of looking at the language, you think about the operative clause, which is the right of the people. right? To my knowledge, nowhere in the Constitution is the line, that idea of a right exists specifically to say this is the right. So clearly, the idea was that the framers from Scalia's perspective understood that this meant that people would be able to keep and bear arms. And it's important to note no, that when not. you look at the, and, and this is where we're going to disagree. This is so wrong, I'm that sorry. That when you look at the uh, textual piece, right, uh, in terms of what the meaning of that, of that looks like, it basically says, and the court ultimately says this, that we have the right to possess and carry arms in case of confrontation. And that's what the court would eventually say, or did say in a previous, in you know, a. Prior case in the 19th century, but the purpose here is to understand that from an originalist perspective, when you look at the operative clause, right, and then there is the. Uh, forgive me for a moment, because I'm trying to. The operative these. clause. The what was the other the the name of the. Uh, the preamble. The, the no the. A uh, prefatory clause which said. Yeah, the preamble. Part. The preamble, which said a well well-regulated militia being necessary the security of the free state. Obviously, and this has been another prior case in Miller where the court had basically said, right, so militias can carry you know, arms and use them for the purpose of defense. So in terms of what Sammy's said, No, history, no, no, hold on, hold
0: on. Well, let's just be accurate for a second. That's not what Miller said. What Miller said was that the Second Amendment does not, uh, that the Second Amendment should be only construed to encompass uh, the right for militia
1: to 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 uh, which is to, to be which able. Is, to when you rewind this and go back, you'll find out that I just said that. No, that's that's not what he just that's, said. That, that's okay. We're, we're, you're going to hear this a lot. Don't worry. So, right. it's, it's it's playful banter. That's not right. what you and said, but it's okay. It's not what ne- you ne- said. Neither one of us takes this personally. <laughs> so the but the, per, the so the idea here, I guess, is that you have to right you, when you look at the originalist argument, you're saying I have to go to the dictionary. I have to go to this history and tradition of what these words mean and now i'm looking at the precedent in terms of what this looks like and now what i need to do is decide ultimately you know does this argument have any merit in terms of what the court finally comes out to say because remember the idea the idea is we're attempting to get to 5 right? And this is, I think, Brennan, right? This is, yeah, Brennan. Or Brennan or Warren. No, no, excuse me, it was Warren. It was Warren. Warren. Well, one of them said, you know, you have to get to five. So it's an argument, it's a question of which one of these arguments um, do we think gets us to five? In this particular case, Scalia was able to find five other, you know, four other people to agree with him that when we read the Second Amendment, we're reading it in the context of what that history looks like, what the tradition looks like, what the precedent is saying. For other wrong people. I mean,
0: they were all wrong, you realize, right? I mean, this was based on a false narrative. And this is the problem, I think, the inherent problem with originalism. When you look at their criteria, right, reading the text, going to the history, looking at the tradition and looking at the precedent of other court decisions, right, the issue with this is that it's subjective. If you look back at history, and right, we, we would say, well, how could that be? How could that be true? We know what happened in history. Well, that's not really the case. I mean, even if you just look in this case, right? Scalia would argue. Scalia was making arguments from the English Bill of Rights and things that, in commentary that Blackstone, uh, you know, a, a prominent legal scholar, at in you know, contemporaneously in 1789, said. And and what he was, dis- I mean, you, you you can choose which pieces of history to to regard and to disregard based on what argument you wish to further and this is the problem with originalism you know he says that it always leads you to consistent answers and that's really not the case because in dc versus heller the more originalist argument would be the one that stevens brought up which and stevens is, excuse me he was an associate justice on the supreme court in 2008 stevens is no longer on the court he retired but he was um, a staunch proponent that or he was he was staunchly against the argument that was furthered by scalia which which said that there is somewhere a, an implicit right to self-defense in the Second Amendment, which is not backed up by history, which has nothing to do with the text, and is not affirmed by tradition and precedent, which was which, uh, upon which seventy years of litigation has already been based. And so, what he said which is that's is ridiculous.
1: Sammy's interpretation of of Stevens's argument. Excuse me, I mean, you, the, the argument that so that's what I, he says. I, I, that's I, I,
0: what he says. Right,
1: <laughs> I, and I get that that's what he says. The the, the fact <laughs> is, the, 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 facts, the facts are this. Originalism can lead us to, and this is sort of what ultimately Scalia has a problem with everything else, right? Scalia is not a textualist, and people confuse that, that he goes to the text and says, Here's what the text says. That's not what he's doing. Even in DC versus Heller, when you read that opinion, you're looking at a case of, of examining what that history looked like, what the what the legal terms meant, and arriving to a position of saying the results are this, whatever this is. Now, the problem is that this means that you can basically do, do everything. Um, you know, as long as you can go back to the original's argument and sort of prove that originally this is what we, what we looked at. There's no, no, and then Scalia did this with the Fourth Amendment search, right? You could, take, you could take search, go back to the 17th century, look at the definition and agree that certain searches would not be acceptable even if technology were to change. And that's kind of the argument that most people have against originalism: is that while well, originalism can never be updated because okay, you're always can. looking at the 18th century, it can
0: be wrongly updated.
1: Right, <laughs> <laughs> and it's okay if you disagree with it. But the idea is that when you look at originalism, the argument is: if these meanings, if these terms have meanings, these meanings are not going to change, whether it's 17th century or 21st century. And the answer, to, and good another good example of that. Is speech, speech is speech, right? If it's political speech, then speech is going to be protected. So, if you look at, as Sammy and I were preparing for this, we were talking about Texas versus Johnson. Now, Scalia can side with the majority in that case, and it, and it's simple because burning the flag would have been something that the framers of the Constitution would have seen as speech, and therefore would have protected it. Um, it's the same thing that you know, uh, Kylo versus. Uh, United States with the whole, you know, using an infrared imager, you know... just search for marijuana that was in the house, right. Right. So, like, you know, that would have been a search. It would have been for 21st century or and 17th century. that was
0: unconstitutional, century.
1: right. Right. So when we think about this conversation, it's a conversation of, again, what Sammy mentioned, there were those four things that...
0: Every that single are, justice right. has
1: to use. That, well, not has to use, well, but, but does does. <laughs> and that's sort of reading the words, reading the history examining the traditions, uh, putting in the, pre- the precedent. Now what Stevens is doing and what Sammy's presenting to you is what most pragma- pragmatists would do in terms of looking at, okay, what's the purpose of the phrase? What's the consequence, Are you kidding?
0: I think if anybody came in with an agenda, it was far more Scalia than it was Stevens. (laughs) Scalia was the one who found and just made out of nothing this right to self-defense, which is not in the Constitution and was not furthered by any of the people who were arguing for its ratification in 1789. So when you talk about looking to purposes and consequences, I think if anybody's looking to the purpose of the amendment, it would be Scalia in saying that the purpose of the Second Amendment is to have a right to self-defense. How could you possibly make that
1: argument? I think, I think that for Scalia, though, well, see, this is where, I guess, activism on, on Scalia's part comes in, right? You could be an originalist and still be an activist. You take the language and you take the text, you take the history, and you basically morph it into the argument that ends up, at the, at the end of the day, grabbing four other votes, right? Ten years from now or 20 years from now, those...
0: Which comes down to an ideological question. Right, four and it sort of ends
1: up, ends up being a question of... You know, maybe 20 years from now, somebody has an alternative view or vision of it, and society ends up changing its norms, which again, Scalia would have been opposed to. But again, it's a, and for Scalia, and this is why, I, in my opinion, originalism is much more consistent is that you at least have not in this case, a, <laughs> at least you have an outcome that you understand that will come as That's a result, defensible, of, right. right? And then you, you'll get the result. Um, I think Stevens makes a great point, and there's some conversation as to whether or not originalism can serve a purpose on the left. You know. I mean, um, his his
0: argument is by far the most compelling. There were two dissents that were written. One was by Stephen Breyer, and the, which will, who, whom we will talk, we will speak about at length in a further episode. And uh, the other one was written by Stevens. Stevens has a much more cogent and compelling argument, which you know takes into account how Scalia was wrong on the history and on the tradition and on the and on the textual reading. I mean, he was wrong. What the, what, the, what the court majority did was they looked to the operative clause to, to find some type of inherent meaning that was not there. And then use the preamble, the proem, if you will, but you to, you to hold on to, to justify or to just to make sure that it was not in conflict with their interpretation of the of the operative clause, which is, by the way, a very is surely a very odd way that any justice would ever reach an opinion. So you know, it, it doesn't really hold water for me. So ultimately, you know, we've discussed the first four things that all well most judges use. Uh, I think at this point we should talk about what DC versus Heller does in terms of consequences for other uh, litigants and, and other cases around the country where, I mean, first or second amendment, excuse me, second amendment, uh, self-defense quote unquote rights are, are in jeopardy. I mean, the, the issue of this case and, and it's sort of, for me, I mean, the, the, consequences of this case is that it sets a precedent, a new precedent that overturned over 70 years of already established law upon which many, you know, appellate and, and state courts have, have decided, uh, it overturns all of that, which is fine. I mean, sometimes overturning, you know, landmark cases is needed, as we see in Brown and and you know Burger fell and stuff like that. But I think the problem with this uh, with this sort of conclusion by the court is that you you, you end up with some type of. Uh, you end up with a situation in which uh, NRA litigants can come up to and challenge with through litigation all existing gun regulation laws, all existing gun sort of uh, constraints that are, you know, that have a strict purpose to keep people safe and can essentially make it a no-holds-barred, you know, civilians get to have AK-47 machine-gun type war. And that is something that I don't think that the court, you know, it, it, it poses an undue burden on a court, if anybody, that, you know, to, to decide this. And I think that it's not something that should be up to the courts. I think it's something that we should... Should reserve to the states, which, by the way, is if not originalist, nothing. That view. Um, I mean, Scalia is a proponent of, of devolution in terms of decision making and deferring to the federalist democratic process more than anyone. And so, you know, and yet here he is, sort of advancing his own agenda in terms of uh, in terms of DC versus Heller. So, what do you what do you say to that? I mean, I,
1: I think that when we look at the case, the court. So Scalia does see certain circumstances where. Gun rights, gun rights do not outweigh order, right? So he says in the case that well, basically yes,
0: he does. He says there's five distinctions. Right. So he's mentally ill. One right. of them is like uh, Physically felons, disabled, felons, felons but right. like well, that's so arbitrary. I mean, it, well, no, I think I think I think serves, I agree with you. I agree. I, I, yes. I, I, yeah. It's I, I, needed.
1: I, I, I think it serves a purpose. I think the. But so does gun regulation. <laughs> I mean, that takes care of it. But I do think that he understands that, which is sort of why he's saying that there's meaningful locations or meaningful ways to go about regulating that don't infringe on that particular right. I think the issue with this particular case comes down to, and I think the reaction that many people have to this case is the ideological one, right? It's sort of what you just mentioned with the NRA and the concern that the NRA could basically uh, litigate any issue and encourage, you know, the development of that, you know, sort of right theory. Exactly. And make this... And and it's interesting because the other thing that the court doesn't do, and what Scalia doesn't do in this case, is announce this right to be a fundamental one, which is what McDonald versus City of Chicago does. You know, five years later, I guess, or two years later. McDo- by the way, employee. just to just to a
0: quick um, sort of intercession, McDonalds versus the City of Chicago was one of the litigation cases
1: that came out because of the precedent set by DC versus Heller. Right, and and so, you know, in that particular case, you had a bunch of individuals who. Felt like their handguns were well. it was a similar scenario, right? right? I mean, right, exactly the same. I mean, and, and, Chicago you know, had
0: also a huge high murder rate right. and all exactly. that, and and,
1: yeah. and, and and attempted to do this. So, so the going back to the interpretive philosophy here, ultimately, you you know, when you look at originalism, you're talking about something that's much more stable that leads you to an outcome. That's sort of predictable,
0: whereas unless your you, form of interpretation—unless you have an agenda, right—as we see in
1: this. Well, case. but I think, I think there's no way. I don't know what the agenda would be because you had to convince four other people. I think I think that you know taking away—that's kind of a well, you've anyway, gone <laughs> yeah four other people, four, no, the, four but, other but, conservatives but, on the court, yeah right. But I think I think I think that's the problem with these cases that you don't have um, you don't have this sort of. Unanimous idea of what these words mean, and so so from an originalist perspective, I think when you look at what Scalia is arguing, you know, there's no denying that those words have those meanings. No, there is. I mean. Right. Well, this is again. It's sort of the debate that. Kind this of, is gets the, this developed. is the,
0: this is. I mean, and this is my entire point. Right. The key limitation to to originalism is that history has many. different... I mean, if we are so if we are so concerned with with construing the Constitution to only mean what the people at the time wanted it to mean, then why not have nine historians instead of nine justices? Why do we need legal requirements? I mean, the the whole purpose of this, right? That Scalia puts such pressure on is to make sure that we are staying true to what the people well, but the I majority also, elected to put in the constitution right and I, and I think
1: there's the key right is the is the fact that you've elected people to make these decisions so it's not for well not the
0: judges the judges
1: are appointed right and that's exactly the point so, so the idea was again going back to the original history right you had these <laughs> you, going back to the originals perspective the idea was you're going to have justices who are going to sit on this court right and there's no there's the number 9 is insignificant you were going to have a number of justices sit on this court and ultimately they were going to decide uh, interpreting law right fine. i mean yes. that was ultimately what their purpose was and the purpose behind putting them above politics was to give them this life tenure so they didn't have to worry about yes, running in elections fine. so you have this uninterested body right so this group of individuals who are not interested in the politics of the issue, but interested ultimately in clarifying how the Constitution should be interpreted. So those nine have to provide that guidance to the lower courts and Fine, to the lower yes, courts. Fine, 100%. Right? So when you think about what originalism does is it says, you know, here's the language, here's what the language meant in 17th century terms, what it means in 21st century terms, Here's the issue that's presented in this particular case. So, if you think about, you know, um, uh, discrimination cases, right? And you know, we we've we sort spoke of, about this before, we, we, right? We've talked about this before. So, so, you know, you have an equal protection clause, but if you think about in its original meaning, it only protected blacks and women, right? Right, because they had a history of prior discrimination. So, and that's what originalism
0: purports, right? Right,
1: And so, gay rights would never happen, and and gay marriage, same-sex marriage, would never happen, right? But could you and I think this is probably the more compelling thing. Could you use the originalist argument to make same-sex marriage and work? that is what we call living constitutionalism or
0: pragmatism, <laughs> and that's the whole. And that is sort well, of. I mean, I, no, no, hold on. So I, let me just. And then yeah, we, we should probably. I mean, we should probably wrap this up. But the, the whole, the whole danger with originalism, as we see in um, in the faulty understanding of the history by by the the majority decision in Heller, is that. Uh, history in many cases is more subjective because there are many different, you know, things that go into interpreting history than different sides of different issues. I mean, it's just as you see in terms of Stephen's dissent versus the majority opinion. I mean, there are tons of different interpretations. Some are right and some are wrong, but there are different interpretations. Um, and the, 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 I guess the, the, the compelling argument against originalism is that there are certain cases, yes, in most cases you should rely on the first four criteria that we have laid out. Text, history, precedent, tradition. Always. Right? Because we need continuity. You're absolutely right on that, Marco. However... When it comes to so if you if we only did that, we wouldn't have Brown versus Board of Education. If we did that, we wouldn't have Obergefell, which which allows for gay marriage. And so and so the, the whole thing is that when we look to the underlying values that 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 pervade our constitution in terms of active liberty, having a greater participation in the democratic process, which by the way, every judge agrees on. In order to have that sort of forwarded, except maybe Clarence Thomas, but in order to have that forwarded, we need to interpret you know, in, in to take your example of the Fourteenth Amendment, it can't just be what it meant at the time with blacks and 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 women only being protected in terms of history of discrimination. It must adapt to then also take into account everybody who has a history of discrimination. So, and and what the originalists fail to see and fail to do is to incorporate more people into the basic protection of fundamental liberties that the Constitution well, no, was I, originally I, I, written
1: I, for. See, I, I think I would disagree with that interpretation of, from the originalist perspective of the Fourteenth Amendment because one could make the argument that the framers of the Fourteenth Amendment, who are not the same framers, right? As the people with different motivations, right, yes, yes. right, So I think I think when we think about that, that's you know two generations later. I Either guess, way, they, they had right. in mind by some women, right? But women's. no. But but the question then is, did because when you look at the Fourteenth Amendment, you see no state, no state, no state, right? So the question ultimately again is a is a is a federalist federalism question of, well, if states weren't allowed to do this does that mean that you could make the argument that states weren't allowed to violate equal protection on even future things? Well, and that is the compelling argument. right? Right, right. And so that I agree with you, yeah. I, Because I know I'm not sure that there's language that limits the Equal Protection Clause to the groups that have a prior history. African Americans. But one American. could make the argument that, and I think, you know, I, I would still think this is originalism, one could make the argument that, you know, um, Gay people have been discriminated against. Well, they since have? Caesar, right. right? I mean, going back to Roman Republic. That's what you said before, right? Exactly. Right. So, so I think that. So you think it adapts, basically. Uh, right. I I I think that originalism, living originalism, is a good. Way. <laughs> right. I guess I guess that might be. That's, a good that's way, probably a good, good, the good media. Good medium, way right. to sort of segue into that. I think. I think that ultimately, one can take. The history and the text and the tradition, and sort of formulate an argument that is consistent and stable as opposed to one that says you have rights, you have rights. Right. And these rights are interpreted yes, from oh, a vague right. understanding yes. of what the word liberty means in the 14th Amendment. Well, okay, we, we can't and, get
0: into the, this is I have too much to say
1: on this. Right, we, right, right. we have to and wait then, for that. Then, We'll leave this for a future right. episode, but I think ultimately that's where that's where ritualism right. separates yes. from everything else is that when we look at that word liberty what does liberty mean? What context are we taking it from? And sort of, is it the responsibility of those nine people who are above politics to make that decision? Or should democratic institutions make that decision with regards to same-sex marriage? Right. Um, And that's... Certainly, you know, the the historical record proves that you know you can't leave to the states this is of fixing right. discrimination of but, course because they won't do it <laughs> right and but 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 lawrence v
0: texas brown right. v board right we right. know this it was,
1: so, so we know that and so i guess the thing that we'll have to explore is sort of taking what that 14th amendment liberty term is and sort of exploring how these rights develop so I think, I think this concludes our first conversation. I think
0: you're absolutely right.
1: And, and so we'll, we'll look forward to... Uh, continuing
0: this discussion about right. the... And
1: developing some new arguments for other cases. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning in. Say adios. Adios.